0: If we can develop
1: in our children a little bit of reflective thought and this process of looking within and going, well, is that true for me? Mm. And is, is that how I want to live today? And then, but li- even limiting the amount of time on introspection. I swear I lost 20 years of my life reading self-help books. I was, <laughs> you know, I write this stuff now, you know, yeah. but it's like, well, come and read a blog post and then go re- live your beautiful life and see how that works and let me know. Mm. And we'll learn this together.
3: to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
5: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
3: until you tried it on same goes for your health care
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you back on our show uh, for a second time. We had you here when we were called Blogcast FM. Uh, You were a speaker at last year's Instigator Experience. Always been a huge fan of your work. Love the way you write, the way you create, and everything you stand for. So uh, on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, uh, your story, your journey, uh, especially for people who may not have heard of you before and our new listeners, and how that's brought you to what you're up to in the world today?
1: Sure. Boy, no pressure with that. (laughs) Well, three years ago for my 50th birthday, I gave myself my life dream, which was to start a business where I could do speaking and writing inspirationally. And um, it took me 20 years to get the nerve to start it so much that I had to call my site Life After Tampons instead of Mothers Who Want Other Shit Too, which is probably what it would have been if I'd done it when I first had the idea. So what Life After Tampons is, it's a global community of women over 40 who all secretly yearn for something more but don't have a lot of clarity maybe yet about what that is or about how to get it. So our site provides clarity and strategy for women over 40.
2: Hmm. Well, let's do this. Um, I really want to get into the journey before the journey because I know there's a, a very, very like, deep part of the story that leads to all of this. So, so talk to me about everything that came before Life After Tampons that actually led to the formation of it.
1: Sure. Oh, wow. Well, nobody grows up and says, I want to be an inspirational speaker when they grow up. As a matter of fact, I thought I wanted to be a flute player. So, I went to college on a flute scholarship and hated hated being a music major, loved being a flute player, but not majoring in music. So, I ended up in business and one thing led to another, started at IBM and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And I was among the generation of women. We were the first generation who was taught you could have it all. Which is a myth, um, but that's what we were taught. And not only were you supposed to have it all, but you were supposed to make this huge splash and rise to the top of corporate whatever and and do everything else to the nines. And what we found out almost a generation later is that you can have everything, but not all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that I was unhappy with the traditional working life, but I didn't know what other options were available. And actually what happened was a tragedy. I had a daughter who died, and you know about this. Mm -hmm. Um, My daughter Grace was my first, and she'd be 23 next month. Um, And what came of that, though, was about a year or two later, I did a workshop for church called Healing from Loss. One thing led to another, and within six months I had what was then a speaker circuit, but that was before the internet. And my topic was about living your life dream but I had by the time that was growing I had other babies at home and I just felt too conflicted about flying all over and doing this so I gave the business up and went back to get a master's which is a lot of what what a lot of women do instead of doing their dream they go learn about it or Mm -hmm. write about other people doing it but not doing it themselves Mm. And then uh, in my writing class there, I had a writing professor who won the Pulitzer Prize, was totally in love with my work, told me I was the best student he ever had, so I stopped writing for 10 years, (laughs) because that's another thing that we do, like when we get when we meet the enormity of what could possibly be possible for us, we get a little bit afraid, many of us. And so I did what a lot of my people do and shut down. And finally, as my 50th birthday was approaching, I thought, you know, I just had this feeling that it's sort of now or never. turned out to be a good time in our family for me to take a step away from traditional work and spend a few years building this business. And we just had our third anniversary Mm. on February 1st. So that's how I got there. Okay.
2: Awesome. So, so many things there. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back into uh, another part of this uh, in the very beginning. I think one thing that's really interesting to me is that you said it took you 20 years to find the nerve. Uh, yes. And that to me is something that I feel all of us have. I think anybody listening to this has some of that internally of trying to find the nerve. And I'm really interested in what keeps people from finding the nerve, how we overcome that and and, you know, how we actually find the nerve to do what you say is claim the life dream that we want. Does that make sense?
1: Well, it does. I think one of the things is if you never go for it, you never have to be denied it. Mm. You still get to have the fantasy that it would be possible. But if you go for it and it doesn't work out the way you want it to, then you have the pain of feeling like you are failed. And a lot of that comes from misunderstanding what failure is and what trying is and, and the mindset behind, uh, I've learned a better mindset behind launching things like your big life dream or whatever. For example, really lower your standards. If you make everything a win rather than going for really big things, just picking up the phone could be the win, Mm -hmm. you know, and those kinds of things. Then you build your trust and your confidence along the way. Mm.
2: So, so let's get into defining the pain of failure and trying, because I know you have this beautiful blog post about failure that I actually just read the other day. So, so let's, let's define that uh, in a bit mm-hmm. more depth for people and give them a framework for how they can apply it to the art they're making, the stories they're telling, and the work they're doing.
1: Well, if you think of every time something is invented, it's usually not on the first time. There's lots of trials before that. Then everything before the last thing was a failure. Mm-hmm. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is everything before the last thing was an iteration of the ultimate thing. And between Operation A and Operation B, you learn something, you put that into play for Operation C, and on and on you go until you get to the place where you want to be. So you start to look as everything as being a baby step of iteration. In other words, we're experimenting with success. To see where we get, and that takes the pressure off of each certain time that we have to do something has to be the right thing, or this is my last chance, or any of that kind of grandiose language that our culture teaches us to use, but is not strategic. Hmm.
2: I love that. I mean, I think it, it really, it, it's about, in my, my mind, you know, taking the pressure off of yourself uh, and enabling yourself to take risks that give you enough feedback, but that you don't feel will just be devastating if they don't work out.
1: Micro risks. Yeah. Right. Or,
2: or what Peter Sims, a former guest here, calls little pets.
1: Okay. Terrific. And then keep getting it in perspective too. So you have your your micro experiments, you have your lower your standards, mm-hmm. and then to keep the things in perspective, as you know, you were saying earlier, that when it comes to loss or failure or anything where you feel like the force is disturbed in the universe, all you need to do is look around, not too far, mm-hmm. and you'll see other people who have their hardships as well, and maybe you wouldn't want exchangers for that. And it keeps it in perspective.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, that actually makes a perfect setup to talking about the next question that I wanna ask you, which is this whole concept of healing from loss, especially because you talk about keeping things in perspective. And this has been one of my particular challenges I can see somebody who has gone through something as horrific as you have, like losing a child. And then something that in comparison is inconsequential can cause me like just, you know, volumes of grief. And so one, I'd like to talk about that whole idea of healing from our losses and also how you deal with this, keeping things in perspective. I mean, I, I, you know, Mm -hmm. when I think about, okay, trading, you know, my issues with yours. Yeah, that sucks. But when you're in the moment, you're consumed by it, you can't even see that perspective. I think sometimes.
1: And you shouldn't have to try. Mm. I think that one of the things that makes it hard to heal from any kind of loss is this idea that we have to compare and then we feel bad if for feeling bad. Mm -hmm. You know, there's our feelings and that's one thing. And there's our feelings about the feelings. And that's usually where we get into trouble. It's usually around our judgments. So, you know, you could look at someone who's had the death of a child and negate your entire life experience of loss because you've never had that one. Mm -hmm. And think that that's the worst one that could happen to you. And what happens then is instead of like really owning sorrow as the gateway to freedom, you never get there. You just get stuck Mm -hmm. um, because you feel like you should be over it already so we use we have to be careful with perspective we use it to see to put our losses in perspective but we don't use it to deny our own feelings and i think it's just part of the human condition
2: so you said something there that uh, i want to talk about in a bit more detail actually in quite a bit more detail is owning our sorrow is the gateway to freedom Uh, Mm -hmm. i'd like you to expand on that and talk about that uh in more detail and talk about how we can really leverage that, uh, to get to that other side of, of, you know, what we're trying to get to after our losses or after our failures.
1: Well, let's say the worst thing in life happened to you that you thought it could be. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you to say what it is. It's private. Everybody's this private, but let's say it's the worst thing that can happen to you and life happens. And then that thing happens. What are you going to do? Right, You either get bitter or you get better. You have a choice Mm -hmm. there. So let's say you decide you're going to get better. Well, how do you do that? You have to look around for anyone else who's ever had that situation and study how they've survived it, and then copy. Mm -hmm. If you decide to get bitter, then your life is going to be a series of concentrically smaller and smaller and smaller circles, because that's what hate does. Mm. It binds you up. But if you see that loss is the gateway to freedom, then you see if the worst thing that happens to you, if you already have a plan for getting through it, then you don't need to fear it so much. Hmm. Right? Now, the death of a child is not the worst thing that can happen to you, I think. Having your baby be missing is the worst thing that can happen to you. Um, I know where mine is. And, and I've long since made peace with that loss in my life. But the thing is about knowing that and knowing that I've survived this other thing or what other other things I have in my life, I've just made a little miniature study of how to do this, how to survive. And you have to be careful, though, because you don't want to have this mindset of I'm in survival all the time, because that comes from a place of, of negativity, right, of loss instead of I'm going to embrace all that's great every day and accept that there are wounds that come along the way at the same time. Hmm. So loss is the gateway to freedom because if you can make peace with your fear, then you get to live fearlessly. What can you do to me today? Really?
2: Okay, so making peace with fear. That's something I want to get uh, deeper into as well. Sometimes I feel like we have to make peace with the fear before the fear actually arrives uh, when it comes to the things that matter to us or making peace with all possible outcomes for every scenario.
1: Well, when I was in graduate school, uh, some professor recommended to me I read a book. It was probably um, the most influential book I ever read and it was um, it was about death and loss. And um, I'm going to look up the spelling of the name for you. Um, But at any rate, it was called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. It was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And he was saying that everything that in life that we fear is really just a denial of death. If you can make peace with you're going to die one day and really make peace with that, then what other fear is there?
2: Hmm. Wow. That is a a beautifully profound way of putting it.
1: all the other fears are pretend fears uh-huh. because it's, it's in a denial place as if this thing that you are afraid of really matters when it comes next to the big one, hmm. right? Yeah. So, our work is to live as mortal people but create immortal, beautiful work at the same time so that our work is our legacy, our family is our legacy. The way we love is our legacy. And every time we can do that, we can if we can hold like this dual presence of, yes, I'm a mortal human being and t- this is this is the next 24 hours that I have to create something, what failure is within that mm-hmm. that could be possible? Let's say the worst thing happens. What's the worst thing? Your business gets shut down? Okay. Then you learn from it and you start a new one. I mean, most businesses get shut down. hmm You know, or you go back to work for someone. And most people are grateful to have a job, you know. And so we just enjoy creating in this day and do the best we can with this one day. Mm. Keeping an eye toward the big picture, but not losing ourselves in the yearning for it.
2: Wow. Okay. So... You said something in there that I'm, at this point, positive is going to become the title for the interview, and that is creating immortal, beautiful work. Let's talk about that. How do you define your immortal, beautiful work, and how do we find ours?
1: I think it would be presumptuous of me to tell you how to find yours, (laughs) but I can tell you what I've done and how that makes me feel, and you might be able to borrow some of that. Hmm. So what I try to do every day at lifeaftertampons.com is I just be, have as much honesty and integrity with my own voice, with my readers as I possibly can. I write exactly how I speak and I'm the same version of Jennifer Boykin no matter where I go, whether it's at the coffee shop or on this interview with you or with my husband, you know, before this talking about scheduling for the day, it's the same version. Therefore, I don't have to remember any version for where I am anywhere. It's the same thing. And that's exactly how I use my voice in speaking with my readers as well. And as I've done that, it becomes clearer and clearer to me what I believe in and what I know. To the point where now, three years into this journey, I feel, well, I had two goals for life after tampons. I feel like I've definitely solidified the first one, which was to create a place where any woman, regardless of means, economic means, could find the strength tools, community, accountability, and desire to change her life she wanted. I'm clear that I've done that. The second goal is to now provide, um, to change the world, the way the world thinks about women and aging. And what that begins with is changing the way we think about it ourselves. The struggle is within. But when I look at my body of work, which is what you had asked, and I look at the 300-some blog posts and the X dozen media interviews and all these other speeches and everything and the books I've written. I think if I died today, my three boys would know very clearly who their mother was and what I would suggest to them to do in any given situation in life. That's complete now. And because I've been my best version of myself, everything else is just discovery.
2: Wow. Uh, I want to talk about another thing that you have have mentioned here, uh, which is the sort of myth of having it all, uh, which I think ties into, you know, what you were talking about uh, in terms of the way women think about aging and and the cultural narrative around that. Uh, I really want to get deep into this because I think there's something really important here, and I'm not even sure what it is, but I feel like there's a lot more here that we need to talk about um, in terms of how this influences, you know, the lives of women how it influences their work and how it influences um everything that is going on because I think you're right we do have sort of this this um dichotomy of cultural narratives of stay at home you know be a mom raise a family and then you've got people like Sheryl Sandberg talking about lean in and I'd love for you to talk about I guess the contrast of those two narratives and, and the balance and kind of you know where uh where you fit into all of that and what your thoughts are around all of that.
1: Well, I'm not sure there is a contrast between those narratives. Mm -hmm. Whether you're leaning in at work or you're leaning in at home to raise your family, um, it's just another catchphrase for do the very best work you can Mm -hmm. (laughs) and show up the best you can. So it's… Just another clever phrase for that. But really what happens to women is because of the, as you said, the cultural narrative and the way that we're shown in the media, the family that we come from, and this idealized version of who we thought we were going to be, we don't show up in the world fully ourselves. We spend the first 20 years or so making everyone else's dreams come true and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing I loved having my family and my children and I'm really grateful for that part of the journey um it's just part of what's required to you as a mom now I have three sons so I'm not saying women this is not you know the gender wars and women have it harder than men I don't believe that um you know I I I watch my sons do their work in the world, and I know they have challenges as well. I can only speak from my own personal experience, which is the pressure is really to do that, to go to work. If you're going to work at a job and make the dreams of the organization come true, then you go home and you raise your children and you you set them up for success in the world. And by the time there is space on the horizon to have a turn in your own life, our culture says, well, thank you very much for sharing. Please go sit over there. and on, a, on the one hand that's like well wait what about my turn but see the, the dictator in all this isn't the world it's ourselves go ahead and take your turn sweetheart we don't need the media or our family to give us permission you're a grown ass woman you just take your turn mm-hmm. and the good thing about being nobody expecting anything of you is like boy you can come out of the pack with a big splash because nobody's looking this way And, um, so that the person that we need to overthrow a little bit is ourselves and our own limited thinking about what's possible for ourselves. Hmm. So,
2: you know, you said something, which I think makes a perfect transition from what you just said. You talked about this idea of creating, uh, the idealized version of who we thought we should be or we would be. And I think that is not just applicable to women, but people in general. Yes. And, I can tell you, as I'm listening to you say that, there is a part of me that says, at this exact moment, I'm not the idealized version of who I thought I would be by the age I'm at.
1: Congratulations.
2: <laughs> How do we disconnect from that so it doesn't get in the way of what we're put here to do?
1: You, could, you just say to yourself, eh, what a silly thing to say to myself. <laughs> That's it. It's no big deal. You just go, oh, there I am, saying my silly, cute thing again, mm-hmm. thinking that I'm supposed to be something any different than this version. Yeah. I don't know. I know you personally. I can't imagine why you'd want to be anything more different than you are.
2: <laughs> uh, well, that, that that's interesting because I, I I have a feeling that a lot of people feel that. Uh, you know, there's a, this movie that I, I've referenced when I gave a talk once called Disney's The Kid. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a no, beautiful I haven't. movie and it's it's with Bruce Willis. He somehow ends up getting a visit from his eight-year-old self on his 48th birthday, and the eight-year-old self is completely disappointed by who he is at the age of 40. Yes. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, he meets a, a woman at a bar who says, you know, that's the craziest story I've ever heard, but she's like, I have a feeling that the eight-year-old self is here to teach you something more than you are to teach him something.
1: Terrific. What did he learn?
2: Well... Um, you know, it, it's funny. There, there's one line that stands out always from that movie to me. Uh, so he, he's putting the kid to sleep, you know, when he's finally starting to, to realize that, okay, you know, we're, we're getting along now. And, and the kid asks him a question. He said, so, you know, what happens um, between now from when I'm me to when I become you? And he says, well, he said, you know, you graduate from high school, you become smart, you go to UCLA, he said, and then you go from being you, a loser, to a high-powered chick magnet who's wealthy. And he says, so I'm a high-powered chick magnet without a chick or a dog.
3: Uh,
2: <laughs> and I remember that scene very distinctly because the kid looks at him and he says, that's, that's how you see me. And what's interesting is, is that it, it, it's almost a wake-up call to this guy at the age of 40 to reconnect with what that kid inside of him wanted.
6: Mhm.
1: Well, I thought you were going to say, well, between now at 8 and here you are at 40, you're going to become a little less of yourself every day.
2: Oh, well, that's that's exactly what has happened.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. But we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves for that. There's great cultural pressure to do that. Mm. My men that I'm raising have great cultural pressure to succeed, to survive, to be strong, to be the provider. And you know, you can buy your baby a a baby boy baby like I did all you want. It's still coming. Mm -hmm. You know, the cultural influences. And and that's okay. You know, we need that in order for us ourselves as a species to survive, I suppose. But if we can develop in our children a little bit of reflective thought and this process of looking within and going, well, is that true for me? Mm. And is, is that how I want to live today? And then, but li- even limiting the amount of time on introspection. I swear I lost 20 years of my life reading self-help books. I was... <laughs> And I write this stuff now, you know, but it's like, well, come and read a blog post and then go live your beautiful life and see how that works and let me know.
2: Hmm.
1: And we'll learn this together.
2: You know, um, it's really interesting, you you know, you bring up raising kids and uh, I don't remember what it is, but I remember my mom noticed it when you were a speaker at our event Uh, You said something very distinctly about, you know, the expectations that parents have for their kids and vice versa, and I can't remember what it is, and I'm not sure if you do either, Uh, but it it was probably the most, one of the most revealing things that you said uh, during the entire event.
1: Those are always the unremembered things, the most (laughs) revealing things I said.
2: (laughs) Yeah, part of it is, I'm not sure what it is. I think it, it was about expectation, like expectations that children have of their parents and vice versa.
1: Right. Well, we do. We we expect them to be perfect and they expect us to to um, follow in their shoes, you mm-hmm. know, um, to a certain extent. But again, you know, overthrow yourself. You know, your parents are just part of it and part of growing up is, you know, um, making it, I mean, my mother sent me an email this morning saying that I should cancel my birthday party because it's supposed to snow, you know. <laughs> I'm 53 years old, you know. <laughs> She's still helping me. Uh-huh. You know, and um, thank you. And then you go about and do what you're going to do. Yeah.
2: let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk, uh, specifically about music. Uh, you know, I think that the way you leverage music and the way you incorporate it into the work you do is really mind blowing to me because I've seen it, uh, firsthand. And it's, it's one of the most magical things I've ever witnessed in my life. Thank
1: you. And I'm really
2: interested in how music and playing the flute has influenced and shaped uh the way you create you know your immortal beautiful work
1: oh my gosh, probably in a thousand ways that I hadn't even thought of. No one's ever asked me this question
2: that's why you're here <laughs>
1: i can I can say though okay, for the audience, I've been a flute player now. I just had my fifty third birthday yesterday. Mm, happy birthday. Thank you love. and um I started playing the flute when I was eleven, so now I've played for what forty two years on and off. Now that doesn't mean I've had it out there playing every day, but that was my first career. And I think the one thing about training to be a classical musician when you're on stage and you're doing recitals and all that is that you it's live performance, you have to get very comfortable with the idea that something's going to happen that wasn't planned. Mm. And as so that when I get up in front of an audience now I kind of embrace that. I'm thrilled to find out what's going to happen and I have really very little fear about any possible mess up because I've developed the ability to think on my feet and that is definitely because of music. Another thing is the artistry and the writing. I noticed um, that I use uh, that I think of rhythm and I think of orchestration when I'm writing like I'm a sober person, and I' saying that I have is we stay sober under any and all conditions. And people quote me, and they go, "Oh, we stay sober under any and all circumstances." And I'm like, "It's not circumstances. It's not dun da dun da. Dun, dun. It's da 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 da. It's conditions, you know." And um, so I just notice when I'm writing that I hear uh, syllables, and I hear the way the timbre of the notes are in a very musical way, and I think that helps with the craft. I don't know how to describe it anyway, other than that.
2: I think that's a perfect way to describe it. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing.
1: I, my go my husband also points out to me that when I'm out in the world, uh-huh. if I hear a sound like a motor or an elevator ding, I'll sing this note out loud. <laughs> and I didn't notice that I did this. And my kids are all like, Yes, mom, you've been embar- embarrassing us for years because you sing loud in public. Uh-huh. You just hear a, a, a sound, you have to match the note. Wow. I don't know. Weird. So I would probably embarrass you if you were my kid.
2: (laughs) So two things uh, that really kind of struck a chord with me there. The first is this idea that something's going to happen that wasn't planned.
1: Of course it is. Isn't that exciting?
2: That is exciting. I think that that actually uh, is not just a metaphor for, uh, is not something that applies to live performance, but life in general.
1: Well, the year I chose to play the flute. I was 11 years old, and that was the year my estranged father died of alcoholism. Hmm. And when my mother was telling me on January 4th, 1974, that my father had died and the funeral was tonight and did I want to go, and I can remember this one little tear making its way down my cheek, and at that moment the phone rang, and it was my great-grandmother And she asked to speak with me after she was talking with my mom. And she said, Now, Jenny Ann, your father was a love of your mother's life. Don't you cry and upset her. And I remember like sucking that tear back up and not crying again for 17 years over that. Hmm. And what I did instead was I practiced. And every time I felt upset or grieving, I can remember my hands shaking as I'm putting the flute together. And if there was arguing in the house, I can remember running up and putting the flute together and practicing. Or there was bullies at school or disappointment. I just played it all into the flute all of it. And there was something about artistry and mastery that allowed me, as I got better and better and better technically, it had this kind of transference feeling inside of me that I could have mastery over other things. And I think that's like, when you learn to do something to the point of greatness, when you practice so hard and you get so good at something, so eloquent at something, that you are great at it you have mastery over it, then everything new that you try or every fear that you have just becomes another thing to crack the code on. And because you've done that before, you can bring that same knowledge of, oh, I know how to crack codes. You look for other people who've cracked this code, you mirror what they've done, you practice, you show up every day, you do your wood shedding, which is your technique, you show up every day. And so, those are some of the ways that artistry as a flute player has transferred into my work as a speaker and writer. But you don't have to be, other people listening will be, and this is the first thing we're going to do. We're going to exclude out and go, well, I should never have given up the piano because damn, it's too late. Now I can't have artistry. It doesn't have to be a musicianship. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you draw or maybe you're awesome in the kitchen or maybe you surf or whatever. Yeah. There, you know, when you learn to be excellent at anything, then that excellence skill set on how to be excellent transfers. And if you aren't excellent at anything, get curious about how you might want to start and leave the excuses behind of it's too late because I can hear a whole bunch in the audience people go, that's too late for me, I'm too old.
2: (laughs) There's part of me that said that about certain things in my life. I was 30 when I learned to surf and I have not an athletic bone in my body.
1: Well, next year, I've decided I'm going to become the menopausal yogini. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I've decided I'm going to do. Let me ask you something. Go ahead, honey.
5: uh,
2: About what you just said, which (coughs) honestly was probably one of my favorite parts of the interview so far. What was it that caused you to cry again after 17 years?
1: Oh, my 364th day of sobriety. The night before my first full year of it. And it was like, what a waste. Nobody has to die from this disease.
2: Let's talk about that in a bit more depth. Uh, I, you know, I I know that you are an alcoholic because I remember very distinctly being at a party with you and saying, hey, Jennifer, can I get you a drink? Which was the stupidest thing I probably (laughs) said. And then you told me and I was like, oh, never mind. (laughs) You can get me a thousand of them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But let's talk about going through these dark periods in our lives, uh, and you know, what yours was like, what are the lessons that you brought from it, and how every day forward uh has been different because of it?
5: Well,
1: I'm not I'm probably not the best example of this because um if there is a Stereotypical picture of what an alcoholic would look like, Jennifer Boykin wouldn't be next to it in Wikipedia. I mean, I graduated from college at the top of my class. I carried up to 23 credit hours a semester. I was on the board of student government, first chair in the orchestra, five honor societies, blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, and I drank too much. I only drank for eight years. But You know, one of the gifts that my father gave me from his story is that when I got to that place, I saw that, you know, that that was an outcome that was possible for me. And I just wanted something different. And for our listening audience, whatever it is that your difficulty is, your life challenge is, you either get to address it or you decide not to. And my experience is that if you decide not, not to, life is going to raise the volume <laughs> to get your attention on that thing until you address it anyway. Hmm. And so, I had a pretty early exit from the stage of drinking. I don't, Like I said, I only drank for eight years, and now I've been sober for 26. But it's all a day at a time anyway. It's all a miracle a day at a time. And I think that's about the only thing I need to share about alcoholism today. Hmm.
2: So, when we're going through our own dark times, is a day at a time the way that you think people should approach it, regardless of whatever that darkness is?
1: If you can make it a whole day. Yeah. When I'm in the dark time, it's like, what am I going to do till lunch? <laughs> so, what I recommend is a um, a very practical thing to use is called an obsession appointment. Uh-huh. This was given to me some years ago. Um, a lot of us get stuck in our thinking. We have obsessive thinking when we're in rage or sorrow or fear or disappointment. And what we do is we get stuck thinking the dark side of things. And maybe we're trying to help ourselves, but really it's just too scintillating to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you make four appointments for yourself called obsession appointments on day one. You make them for, say, 7 a.m., 11 a.m., 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. for 15 minutes and you actually mark them in your calendar and you, you have a real appointment with yourself and you sit down and you set the kitchen timer or whatever your app for 15 minutes and you're only allowed to think about the thing that you're afraid of you're obsessed about you're um, feel sick inside about you're sure will happen only that thing you're not allowed to get a glass of tea you're not allowed to take a pee break you're not allowed to do anything but obsess for 15 minutes then, when the timer goes off, you get up, and you don't allow yourself to have obsessive thinking again until the next appointment. Mm-hmm. Now, what will happen is, of course, you will have obsessive thoughts. Right. So, what you have to do is say, stop, this is not my time for my resentment obsession, the next one's at 2 o'clock, and you just keep doing that until you redirect your thoughts, and you learn to channel your thoughts into appointments, Here's the other thing that happens. You sit down for your fifteen minutes and you find out you don't have fifteen minutes worth of material you really <laughs> you've really only got about two, uh-huh. but they play in a loop over and over and over again, and because we replay them, they get more power each time.-huh We give them that power because they're just thoughts, yeah, they're just things in our mind. They have no power other than what we assign. Hmm. So we train ourselves to think differently.
2: I love that. That was just mind-blowing. Uh, it completely
1: works. You can't even make it to day two. You get so sick of yourself.
2: Well, I can tell you, I have suffered from obsessive thinking a lot. Uh, and in, in some ways, th- funny enough, that same obsessive thinking has allowed a level of drive, ambition, there you and creativity go. Uh, in certain things that I produce in the world that wouldn't be the way they are without it. Yet there's also that detrimental side that you're talking about, whereas I replay these negative things on an infinite loop. And all it does is make me feel horrible.
1: Right. Well, then you have to ask yourself, if you're not willing to do the appointments, do you enjoy feeling horrible more? <laughs> yeah exactly sometimes we do yeah sometimes we're like you know i'm just gonna because that party that was supposed to you know it's supposed to happen because it got snowed well my kid called and he's sick and it got canceled anyway Mm -hmm. so i was just upstairs like having a little pity party well, crying and feeling sorry for myself because it was my third birthday in a row that's got canceled because my (laughs) birthday's in february and it always snows and somebody's always sick and blah 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 and you know and the thing is it's true that is what happened yeah, You know, so I gave myself that little bit of time to have that obsession, and now I now feel, I feel kind of lifted from it. But you said something really important. It's like the genius comes from that part, the part that won't allow you to let go of something. So why is it that we would want to cut off a hunk of ourselves and say, this obsess- obsessive thinking quality has to go? Mm-hmm. No, instead, we just need to reframe it and get some tools so that it doesn't overtake us and get in the w- way of our ability to produce.
2: So I want to go back uh, to something that you said when we were talking about the influence that music has had on late, your life around sort of artistry. And I love how you brought in all the different sort of ways that we get incorporated. Uh, you know, I find that definitely for me, my voice uh, as a writer, as a creator is absolutely shaped by, by surfing. And I'm wondering how we find sort of the dots that connect in our own lives and our own art Uh, from those various art forms and various influences uh, to bring whatever our artistry is. In your case, it happens to be music, so it applies to the sound of words. And I remember when we had Danny Shapiro here, she said the very same thing about her writing. Because she sat in synagogue listening to sounds, it Mm -hmm. gave her writing almost a musical tone or a a lyric gift. Uh, And I'm really interested in, in how
1: we start to find that in our own work. Boy, me too. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know the how. Mm. I can tell you that for me, the more that I strip away the, the parts of me that aren't Jennifer, the more the clarion bell of what remains is there. So I think we're always looking for a path directly to something rather than an indirect trust of just allowing. So maybe begin with stopping the noise that isn't authentic Mm -hmm. and then see what's left and then build on that and then stop for a minute and see what's inauthentic about that and let that go and then build on that and trust that it's a process rather than this, I'm going to wake up one day and and suddenly any artistry, you know, that I've had in life, like I was master at playdoh or something is going to come through in my work. Hmm. So
2: I want to spend the last part of our conversation talking about, uh, one other thing that you said, uh, which is a Pulitzer prize winning writer tells you that you're the best student he's ever had. And you don't write for 10 years. And you said something right after yeah. that, that really, uh, struck a chord with me that we're afraid of the enormity of what we're capable of or something along those lines I don't know yes. do exactly let's talk about that
1: ooh yeah well I can just say for me that I've always had this feeling that I was supposed to create something really meaningful and big in the world and and the grandiose voice in me is even shouting are she too afraid to say even life-changing hmm. um So, okay, maybe life-changing is a little grand, but that's always been, like, the drive in me. And it was a top-secret drive because for women, you see, we aren't allowed to have that. We're supposed to say that our children are enough and our families are enough and our work is enough. But there is a secret society of us out there that we're standing around the poopy diaper conversation thinking, really, this is what my master's degree bought me, you know? And now we're finding each other online because of this great invention called the internet. And so I think that every person has their own great work in them. But your great work might be to make the best pasta whatever. You know, it doesn't mean that everybody is Gandhi. And I'm okay with that.
3: Hmm.
1: My children... Are gonna. I have three irreverent, (laughs) uh, raucous boys, and I feel confident that whatever great work I have or haven't done with life after tampons, that I've done a great job there, and there's immortality there. But they've never. They've been necessary, but not sufficient to my happiness, Uh and they know that. I would never put that much pressure on them that they had to be the source of that. They just aren't.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to be okay no matter what they decide to do.
2: Hmm. Do you think that people avoid uh, the enormity of what they're capable of because they feel failure or because they fear failure?
1: I know I have. Yeah. And the other problem that um, happens to me and my women is that we're ideas people. I bury 500 of them a day. Mm. And it's enormously difficult to sift through all of those and say, well, which one of these is the one, you know, as if there was such a one. And what I'm slowly learning to discipline myself to do is to pick the one that's right there right now and tease that out a little bit and see where that goes and start to see like, you know, like how like when you're on the jungle gym, you just swing from bar to bar to bar and eventually you get to the other side. So rather than I need the one big idea that's going to it's going to launch my career or launch my second life opportunity after all this is the only choice i have and pretty soon i'm going to be dead and if i don't pick right i you know it's i've already wasted so many years and if i don't pick right then i better just stay here and research it some more but instead of all that pressure why not just pick what brings you joy right now and play with that for a little bit and then say okay well what's next and how how is that received in the world and did that matter to me that it was received in the world and whom do I want to help and how can I put these two ideas together?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And allow it to go that way. Whom do I want to help and how do I put these two ideas together? My creative energy and whom I want to serve in the world.
2: You know, I think that to me, perhaps the biggest takeaway from all of that is, is the work that brings you joy right now And, you know, it's interesting because that's, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the evolution I've gone through in the last probably 18 months is that I started out doing work that was bringing me joy. And amazingly enough, it went from being about what was in my heart to being about my ego rather quickly. And how did that happen? Because creating what's in my heart actually led to a lot of success.
1: Yes. And then you're afraid you're going to lose it.
2: Oh, unknowingly almost. Right. And I did lose it, all of it. Right. Uh, in you? a lot of ways,
1: because we're still having this conversation and people are still loo- listening to us. So yeah. Did so you- well,
2: here's the thing: I lost something that was temporary, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is is ridiculous, but I, I think that you know, um, somewhere along the way, uh, the idea of things that bring me joy stopped being part of it, it became all about things that will produce some sort of external accolade, which is ironic because... The very thing that rel- led to the external accolades was, you know, uh, the things that produced that, that gave me joy, and I think that's that's a balance that uh, it's very difficult to maintain. I know Maria Popova has a great quote about this because you experience that more and more as you become, you know, more successful. And I think that separating yourself from that and just realizing that, hey, getting to do the work that brings me joy is what this is all about, and always staying true to that uh, is what makes it. You, that's what keeps you from losing your way.
1: But what if you're a person like me and attribution and accolades bring you joy?
2: Mm, They do to me as well.
1: Right. Um, And so then like you get them and it's like, is it wrong to want more of that? I, I don't
2: know that it's wrong. You know what? I think maybe where I'm thinking is it's not wrong to want more of that. I think it's clinging to it is what gets us into trouble.
1: Yes. Yes. And saying that's the only possible outcome. Yeah. But the other thing too is that as there's greater risk involved, right? Because Uh I mean, now we're having this conversation. It's just not you and I having this conversation. It's recorded for other people. Mm -hmm. And it's recorded for all time. Okay, so not to, I mean, it can get really freaky when you think about it. The more that you produce in the world, the bigger it gets. And so it feels like all eyes are upon you. Yeah. Whether that's true or not. And that's great when all eyes are there with everybody standing on their feet. You know, but if then all of a sudden they turn around and look in a different direction, that's a loss. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is they're going to. Yeah. And because there's always, you know, the flight of fancy is the flight of fancy that's like there's always the next great thing out there. So I think that in combination with this love of attribution has to be the love of serving and making a difference at the same time. And then even like the smallest little mention of that can be like, thank you for noticing.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know. This is a tough one because <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I want I want life after tampons to grow. I I can't stand the thought of, of there, and I know there are. I know there are thousands of women out there right now over 40 who are thinking, you know, God, it's like, when is it going to be my turn? And suffering in silence. And, you know, I was kind of joking with Jonathan Fields recently, but not really, that you know, the world only gives you two things when you're over 45. You get sensible shoes and vaginal lubricant. That's what you get, <laughs> right? You've done all this work, you've got all this capability, and that's what the world expects for you. And I want Life After Tampons to be the place where any woman can have her third thing, whatever that is. I don't care if it's just Well, there isn't any just, I don't care what it is, but I want there, if you want a third thing, I want it to be there for you. Mm -hmm. And I want the power of the group to say, to hold space for you until you have the strength to do it yourself. And then you become one of the the solution members and you give that space for the next woman who comes along. And I think it's okay to want accolades for that. I think we need it in order to build the, to build the buzz around, you know, there is this place here. Mm
2: -hmm. So I'll make one last comment. You know, you mentioned that this is no longer a private conversation between you and I. And, and the funny thing is that I think what's interesting about that phase when the audience isn't there, when nobody's watching, uh, we act very different. We, we act courageously and we do the things that gets them there and gathers the crowd in the first place. And as you do that, it becomes scarier to do the thing that caused all of this in the first place because now there's something at stake. Uh, right. And this is a conversation we could have for hours, I feel like.
1: Except that we've already solved that problem when we talked about Ernest Becker and the denial of death Mm is that if we make peace with our greatest fear, then the fear of losing the audience isn't there. It's not it's not even in the top 10.
2: Well, uh, that, I think, makes a very profound way to wrap up our conversation. So I want to ask you. One final question, which at this rate I am expecting an incredibly poetic answer considering oh, all the you dropped. So no pressure. Uh, <laughs> what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Everybody's unmistakable. They just haven't discovered it themselves yet. Hmm. You just are because you're a person. You have your own specific experience. You're own gifts, your desires, your heart's desire, it's your secret yearning, and maybe you don't need to have so much pressure to try to be unmistakable, maybe just know that it's your birthright because you're a person that you are, and just go out and be a better version, a truer, cleaner version of what that means, if you can.
2: Well, Jennifer, uh, it has been my absolute pleasure uh, to bring you back to our show for a second time uh, here at The Unmistakable Creative. This has easily been one of my favorite conversations I've had this year.
1: Uh, Wow, Srini. Thank you, love. I always love talking with you. And you know, the thing is, I feel like when you were saying this, and I'm getting shivers, so I know it must be true that it wouldn't matter if we had an audience on this conversation or not, love you and I would say the exact same things that we've said these things because we've done it before sitting by the bench, you know, in Portland and other times Mm -hmm. you're the real deal, love. We don't need need to worry about what anyone else thinks. Well,
2: I I think that makes a a beautiful way to to wrap up our conversation. I can't thank you enough. uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah. And for those of you listening, We will wrap the show with that. I'll link up everything that Jennifer mentioned in the show notes, and uh, we'll close with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.